Hello and welcome everyone. Before we get started, why don't you just type in, if a couple of you could type in yes, so you can confirm you can hear me, that would be great. Um, then we'll get going here. So my name is Andrew Kraus. I co-founded InventRight with Stephen Key over 20 years ago. We've been coaching and mentoring inventors ever since to successfully license their products. And um, of course, not everybody's going to license the first product they work on. Maybe you'll license your second or third or fourth. But one thing that I and myself and our customer service team, our sales team, our marketing team, and all our coaches are really proud of is that when you know how to license, you can do it over and over and over again. And the approach that we teach to licensing means that for many products, not all products, but many products, you can you can literally sometimes spend over under three hundred dollars. You know, hundred dollars for a per, sorry, sixty five dollars for a provisional, and maybe a couple hundred dollars for a virtual prototype and a sell sheet, or maybe you cobbled something together. But when you can invest that little money and be potentially earning you know twenty, fifty, a hundred, two hundred k a year in royalties, it depends on the product, of course. Um, that's pretty cool. Uh, it's really uh, low risk, but a very, very high uh, potential return with licensing. Now, that's not the way most inventors handle licensing. Um, usually people, they come up with an idea, they run out and throw a bunch of money at a patent attorney and throw five grand at a prototyper, um, you know, and, uh, and then they just kind of hope for the best, you know, but why do you need to take all that risk? Why don't you get interest first from a company? But people just don't believe that they can do that, unfortunately, and you most definitely can. So, um, you know, I know a lot of times people will join in 10, 15 minutes late here. But I always like to say at the beginning of these is that, you know, with licensing, it's the big company's money. It's their workforce and it's their distribution. So you don't need to raise money. You don't need to hire people. And you're going to tap into all that distribution they already have. So if they're in 30,000 stores, boom. You're in 30,000 stores. Now, not let's say they're in 30,000 stores of some products, but not others. It doesn't guarantee that. But when you can see that they're really well connected and they can lay out their plan for you for your product and you're going to set up the agreement as such, um, that is really reducing your risk. And that's what we teach at InventRight. So let's go ahead. Um, if you guys could start typing in your questions, that would be great. Kevin said, Hi, Andrew. When applying for a patent, I know that from listening to InventRight videos, we should be mindful of workarounds. My question is when filing a PP workarounds, my question is when filing a PPA, must we be as strict? Okay. So what he's talking about, Kevin's obviously been following us, is that you want to, when you're filing your provisional patent or your patent, you shouldn't just go to your attorney, well, here's my widget, you know, patent it. You should go to your attorney or better yet, not have an attorney. <laughs> and anything I share tonight should not be considered legal advice. Please seek the service of an attorney if you're looking for legal advice. Just thought I'd throw that little disclaimer out there. Um, we have some software that guides our students to use the software called Smart IP, which is written by patent attorney Gene Quinn. You can find it on eventright.com. And it guides you through for writing a provisional. Anybody can write a provisional. I have students, I've had students that didn't have a GED and they were able 
to write their provisional to students that had a PhD. So don't think of it as something tremendously complex. It can be done in common English. Now, one of the things that we always emphasize in InventRight, that I emphasize all the time, is don't just say, here's my widget, whether you're writing it yourself or sending it to a patent attorney. Um, say, here's my widget, and then cover all the variations of it that are feasible in your provisional patent application. So your question, um, Kevin, is should you do that when filing your provisional? Absolutely you should, and it's very easy to do. Here's why it's hard for some inventors to do. The more you've been thinking about your idea for months or years, or God, I've talked to people that are like, I've had this idea for 10 years. I'm like, really? Okay. Um, the more you've been thinking about it, you lose that inventor creativity. So it becomes fixed in your head as to what it is. And, and you do want to decide this is what the product is based on the marketplace so that it's a marketable product, right? But when you're thinking about doing the patent, you want the variation that's 80% as good, 90% as good, just as good, but not the version you're doing. Now, you don't want to get crazy about it. You don't want to include a version that's literally 50% as good because that's not really competition. That's called getting obsessive. And so throwing every minute variation that really wouldn't be competition if your product and their product was on the store shelf, this other version of it. And it's like, oh no, they would buy this one. Then don't include that. That's kind of my rule. If, if it would be such a poor product compared to your version, then don't include it. But if it's like up to like 75% as good, I mean, of course there's no percentage there or little variations that you might not be including in your marketing material that they might be interested in. So you want to throw all that into the provisional patent application because it doesn't cost you a penny more. But here's the problem I see inventors have. Our students have this. I see other inventors having it. It's become fixed in your head as to what it is. And you have a hard time getting out of your head and thinking basically, how would somebody knock off my product? And what is another way? What's the next iteration? What's another version of it? What's another way of doing it? Because whatever patent you get is useless if there's five other ways of doing it that are just as good. So you want to cover those other variations in your provisional. So, Kevin, um, I, we're not just actually I when I state that over and over, I'm talking about doing that for your provisional. But of course, you want to do it for a full utility. So most of our students, they file a provisional. They see what the interest level is. And if they get interest, they get the company to pay for the patent. They give you the money and then you fi file it with your attorney. You don't ever have the company file it for you. It's yours, it's under your name, but the licensing agreement's giving them right to manufacture it. So um, great question, Kevin. So yes, you always want to think about the variations, workarounds, improvements of your product when you're filing a PPA on your own, when you're having an attorney file a PPA, or when you're filing a full utility and you're having an attorney do it. Regardless, um, you need to do that. Now, not all attorneys are good. Some of them won't push you to do that. And they know they just want your 10 grand for that patent or whatever. And, you know, and so they don't want to push you to go, well, you know, if you want me to do a good job here, you need to give variations. And sometimes it's the inventor's fault. The inventor's like, well, you're the, you're the attorney, you file it. You know, and it's like, no, no, I was trying to ask you, like, if you want me to do a better job, I need to know those variations. And attorneys are not inventors. They're not that creative quite often. So it's not really their job to do that. You could, you could make the argument that it is, but why would you count on them to do that? That's your job as the inventor. You're the creative. 
Okay. So you need to think about what the other products would be there. Um, let's see. Uh, I can't read that. Let's see. I can put on my old man glasses here. Fetters four. Fetters four. Okay. It's an interesting handle. Um, it says, can I license to a company that is not a manufacturer? Um, why? So why would you want to do that? So let's clarify that. So it's a good question. Fetters, fetters four. It's like a tongue twister or something. Um, you want to license to the company, the brand. This is the way that our head coach usually puts it, our head coach, Terry Amara, which I like. You want to license to the brand that has retail distribution, whether that's a website, Amazon, or a catalog, or a brick and mortar store. If they have distribution in that store, you're licensing to that brand. Okay. So that's who you're licensing to. You're not licensing to a contract manufacturer that just makes stuff and doesn't currently have distribution in the stores. You're like, oh, well, they make doorstops. But it's like when you look and they're just making doorstops for other companies that then sell doorstops. So you don't want a contract manufacturer. You want a brand that has products in stores. I'll even simplify it more. You want a company where you can see they're selling products in that same category currently now in stores, in catalogs, on websites, okay? Because what do you know? You know they currently have distribution, okay? You don't care if they have their own factory, if they have, if they just get it made overseas in China at a captive factory or a factory where they make a bazillion other things. You don't care. So the word manufacturer is a little confusing. Um, I really like how our head coach, Terry Amara, puts it. It's the brand. You're licensing to a brand that has distribution currently in stores. Okay. So, but licensing contract manufacturers, like you might go on Thomas Register someplace like that. And there's a company that's making, um, let's say they're making gardening implements. Okay. And you, you got a gardening trowel or something, right? Well, that's not who you want. If they don't currently have distribution in stores, that's useless. So they could make it and then where are they going to sell it? Why would they license it from you? So you license the companies whose business model is to make and market things, not just make things. That's a contract manufacturer. So some a contract manufacturer may make doorstops for 20 different manufacturers, okay? And they don't have distribution, so you don't. People are just looking at the next step. How do I get this made? When that's not really what you want to look at, you want to go, how do I want to get this just distributed? 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 Distributed. <laughs> so great question, Fetters 4, and a kind of a fun handle there too. Uh, Thoughtful Jones said, hi, Andrew, company COO on a call as chief operating officer on a call said they have interest in my product, but asked me if I had manufacturing costs. Didn't you ask this last Monday? I didn't. I don't. I don't. I'll read it the way you wrote it. I don't ask me. I don't ask me if I could get them. Okay. Um, how would you respond back on the next call? Okay. All right. So what what I would do, you're, you're much better off. So as an individual inventor, are you going to get accurate costs? Is a large manufacturer 
going to give you a contract manufacturer, going to give you quotes that are reasonable, as opposed to this big company you're trying to license to getting a quote probably from existing manufacturers there with or somebody else. They're going to look at who's asking for the quote and go, oh, these guys are in all these stores because they're going to look and they're going to go, oh, yeah, we're going to give them a quote. And they're going to say something like, oh, yeah, we, we want a small order of 10000 then maybe 40000 or whatever. And they're going to try to get that price down. But you doing that, they're, they're not going to give you a reasonable price. So for you to expect to get a manufacturing price that is going to be as reasonable as the big company. So my point is you want to push that off onto them if at all possible. You want them to get some quotes. So figure out what they need. Figure out what their confusion is about the product. Figure out what isn't clear and, and have that conversation with them so that they can then go do that. And now what's good about that as well is you started to get their wheels spinning and you started to get them doing stuff. Now they're involved in the project. They just push it back on you. They're not involved in the project. So I'm not saying you don't give them what they're looking for, but you know, I, these big companies, like it kind of concerns me if they're not able to get some manufacturing quotes. It's like, what? But maybe you made such a crude presentation that they're like not sure about some of the details and that you could clarify some of those either verbally or in writing, or if you have some drawings or if you um, can even point out products that are similar and this product is only different like this. Look, it's just like this other product for 1985. I just put a hinge on it. And you could tell them that, and then they could tell the manufacturer that. And so when, and now you guys are getting confused about manufacturer, the word manufacturer, right? So they're a brand and a lot of companies, they don't have captive plants overseas in Asia or their own. Some of them do. But so they are getting quotes from the manufacturers that typically manufacture stuff for them. So see if you can get Thoughtful Jones, if you can get the information they need, but ask them what they need. Ask them what they're confused on. Now, it was on a call, so that was good. See, sometimes they send emails. It doesn't take, you know, hey, get some manufacturing quotes. It takes them two seconds to write that. But they took the time to get on the phone with him. That's a very good sign. So you need to get some more information there, okay? Um, this is the type of thing when one of our students would get interest like this, we would put them on with our negotiation coach, Paul, and he would guide them to, he would guide the inventor to guide the company. Believe it or not, you're guiding them more than they're guiding you quite often because they don't do licensing deals every day, most of them. And even the ones that have done a lot, They've never done as much as we have. So we kind of know those ups and downs. And we, the student still stays with their licensing coach, but then we add our negotiation coach, Paul, and he guides them. I just got an email from Paul. Um, I don't know. It was like 30 minutes ago. And one of his students licensed this really cool product. Um, anyway, so... Um, If uh, Jeff says, if a potential licensee says, call us back in a year, would a six-month follow-up be appropriate? Well, um, I don't know, Jeff. I would say, why are they saying call us back in a year for this particular product? Like, you intrigue them enough and they're saying get back to us? Like, find out why. Maybe they're just super swamped right now. Maybe they're dealing with shipping issues. Maybe they don't aren't going to review stuff for a while. A year is an awfully long time. Get back to us in a year. Um, I would find out what why. Like they're interested, 
why a year? You know, um, are they expecting that you're going to go out and sell the product and they can see what your sales are? Because that's stupid. That means they're not really interested. Um, find out why a year. Um, but that's pretty unusual, I would say. Um, pretty weird. And my guess is you're not asking all the questions. And if you do, you could you can kind of figure out why they're saying that. But it's definitely not a deal on the table if you ask me. Uh, get get back to us in a year. I mean, come on. Um, Thoughtful Jones from earlier said they also suggested potential ways to work together. Okay, that's all looking good. So here's the thing, Thoughtful Jones. They were asking, I looked at your way you wrote it, asked me if I had manufacturing costs. So you're confusing them asking you about that. And now you're falsely assuming they expect you to have it. Maybe you're not, but I think a lot of inventors do. So it sounds like you're really moving forward there with that company. That's fantastic. Um, Aaron said, where do I find companies that are interested in new product ideas? Um, you, 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 you don't need to. So there's this big misperception that you need confirmation. They're open to ideas. Like, why do you need that? I don't know. I don't know. You know why? Because you want 100% assurance, or some inventors do. I don't know if it's you, Aaron, so I'm just speaking in general so everybody benefits from the question and the answer. You want some assurance that people won't say no or they won't say we don't accept outside ideas. You don't need that. If they're in a major retailer where you want to be and they're making products in that space, you freaking reach out to them. And so what if they say no? So what if they say, no, we're not open to ideas? And then others say, yeah, we're open to ideas, but then say no to your product. That's the game you're playing. So you don't need to find companies that you know are open to ideas. They'll let you know if they're not. You want to reach out to all the companies that are in the major retailers you want to be in. It's just that simple. And so many inventors are held back by this messed up thought that you need confirmation that they're open to ideas or you need a portal on their website and vendors submit your ideas. Most companies don't have that. Some do. But in the ones that do, like it's kind of a black hole, I'd almost rather they didn't so that you can just submit to their marketing manager. It doesn't matter if they do or don't, but you can go both ways. But this perception that you have to get confirmation that they're open to ideas is really messed up. You won't get anywhere if you feel that way. And a lot of inventors do feel that way. So, um, Aaron, thank you for asking that question. I think everybody's going to benefit from that answer, hopefully. Um, Paul says, it seems like companies in the toy industry want a demo video of a working prototype and not just a sell sheet. Have you found that to be the case? Um, you know, I no, I, I don't think you have to have that. But I do think that toys are harder because what you're selling with toys is fun, right? I mean, if you have a, a product, it's an air freshener for a car, and you're just, you know, you're selling fresh air, you know, so you look at other air fresheners and you sell that and you talk about how it's a little different or what have you. Um, or so the benefits are a little bit easier to relay with a physical product. You get a kitchen cutting board that's easier to clean up. That's the benefit, right? But it's hard to sell fun. And a great way to sell fun is a video. So you're right. So now some products, if you do a sell sheet, and you have a picture of it or maybe a little storyboard and it just looks fun and you can relay that concept without a video. But with others, you need a video because it's easier to show the fun. Now, sometimes 
people have a hard time doing that. You need to get some kids. If it's a toy, it needs to look fun. You're looking for the play factor and the fun factor and all that. And for people that aren't used to shooting video, videos are actually pretty easy to shoot for, for like a kitchen cutting board. You do this shot and that shot and show the easy cleanup. But with the fun, sometimes it seems like kind of fake and you need to find the right moment. And people will shoot these long videos, like three minute long videos. And it's like, nobody's going to watch that. Like 60 seconds max, right? And you, so you need to hit those key points, showing the fun, showing it working. So no, you don't always have to have a video with toys. I would say more often it's a good idea than not, but that's not always the case. And I think one thing that our students learn is we share rules, but it's not black and white where it's always like this or it's always like that. But I would say more often, yes, I would agree, Paul, that... Um, Doing a video for toys is a good idea, but I've seen plenty of sell sheets that were intriguing without the video and weren't confusing, but as long as you can sell the fun, that's the rule. Um, Peter said, I have an idea that combines two inventions, but one of the inventions is a patent on it that will end in a year. What should I do? Well, you know, quite often if you're combining two inventions, um, the question is, are you even violating what their patent is now? When you combine those two inventions, it's another invention. But the question is, you have to look at that patent's claims and go, am I violating any of their claims by this offering this new hybrid product or not? Okay, so that's what you have to do. Now, if it's, it's going to, patent will expire in a year. I don't know. That's not really that much of a concern then, is it? I mean, even before the company, like if, if you if you started shopping it now and you got interest three months from now and then the deal took two months to do, that's five months. And then it's going to take them another um, six months to nine months to a year to launch the product. You're good. But, you know, so I, I wouldn't really worry about it. Um, but anything I share today is not legal advice. So keep that in mind. Um, but so when you combine two things, you know, it's not, you have to look at their claims and they're confusing sometimes, but you have to read it over and over. Read the, like, let's say it's two sentences or three sentences, read the claim like three times because you'll be like, I don't know what that means. And you read it again and again, maybe five, six times. You're like, oh, they're just protecting that hook. Okay. That's not a problem. On to claim number two, on to claim number three. Oh, you know what? Now that I think about this, I don't think this patent's going to be an issue because I've got a new way of, yes, I'm kind of doing the same thing, but I'm doing it for a different purpose. And what they're saying and what is being protected is not what I am doing. You know, now if it is, and it's only a year, um, <coughs> Paul, then, uh, oh no, it wasn't Paul. Who is that? I lost track. Oh, that was Peter. Um, then I really wouldn't worry about it. I just start trying to get it licensed now because it'll be expired by the time you do a deal. Or by, not by the time you do a deal, but by the time it's ready to launch. So, uh, uh, Xavier, Alan Jones. Got a lot of names there, Xavier. Um, if you had to name five to ten do-nots when when going about the inventing, patenting, and licensing process, what would they be? Five to 10, man, you're trying to work me hard. 
what am I charging for this Q&A? Last time I checked, it was free. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding, man. Uh, so five to 10, I, I could list five to 10, but I'm not going to because I want to get to other people's questions and it would take up the rest of the time here. But um, do's, so you wanted, what would they be? Do nots, five to 10 do nots. Okay. So do not, maybe I can rattle at least five off here. Just in, it's pretty easy for me. Um, do not file a patent the second you come up with an idea and you think it's great. Instead, do your market research. See how it fits in with the marketplace. See how it fits in with all the products in the space. Do not have a chip on your shoulder thinking that doing your research on Google Images or elsewhere is your goal is to prove that your product is great and everything else sucks. That's, do not do that. Instead, acknowledge all these other products and their benefits and how your product competes with them. And do you have a point of difference? Um, do not run out and make a prototype right away that costs you any significant amount of money. You might want to play with something duct taped or something simple, but do not go run out and spend 5K on a prototype um, thinking that companies won't license without a completed, working, beautiful prototype because that's not true. Uh, most of our students, 70% of our students just do a virtual prototype most of the time and they get licensing deals all the time that way. So do not think you need to spend a bunch of money on a prototype up front or at all sometimes. Um, so there is a couple do nots. Um, do not think that people, do not publicly disclose your product. Do not publicly disclose your product. Keep it private. It doesn't matter if 100 people or 1,000 people like it on Facebook. It means freaking nothing. The fact that people open up their wallet means something. People liking it on Facebook and you wanting to get people saying, oh, this is great. That's so cool. That's not what you're looking to do. What you're looking to do is license this product to a big company, right? So people, so it can end up in store shelves and people can enjoy it and like it. And you can go, wow, so many people are enjoying my product and I'm receiving royalties because I licensed this big company that is able to get it out there in a big way, bigger than I ever have. Um, do not think that you'll make more money by selling it yourself than licensing it. You got to run the numbers. So also do not assume that you have the time to venture or the money or the skills to venture a product and sell it yourself as opposed to licensing it to a big company. When people tell me they work a full-time job and they got four kids, I'm like, when the heck are you going to start your own business? Unless you dump your job and everything else you're doing and spend 60 to 80 hour work weeks, you're not going to be starting a business. And if you do, it's probably not what you have in mind. Starting this little business where you sell a few here and there on Etsy or something, that's fine if that's what you want to do. But that's not what most inventors envision for their product. They want to go big. So when you license, you can go big with your product. You know, for that company to sell, it depends on the product, to sell 10,000, 50,000, half a million units, it depends on the product, right? is not craziness. But for you to do that and to think that you can do that with a few bucks ain't going to happen. But to license it, you can have a $65 provisional patent. You can have a virtual prototype and you can have a sell sheet and you can license it with quite often spending less than 300 bucks. And it could be earning you 50, 100K a year in royalties. It depends on the product, of course, right? 
So do not think that you'll make more money with venturing it than with licensing it. It it really depends. If it's a product of any significant volume, you'll probably make more money with licensing it. So if they're going to sell 100,000 units a year and you're getting a 5% royalty on whatever the price is, let's say it's $39, then, you know, you're getting it on that huge volume because they're selling 100,000 units a year. And you could go, well, you know, I, I, I could earn 20% profit margin after costs. And, and uh, yeah, but how many are you selling? Are you selling 4,000 units, 5,000? Run the numbers. You might be earning a lot more money with that big company. Most of the time you will be. Um, so this thought that you earn more money because you have a higher profit margin if you sell it yourself. And to be honest, when you, when you try to sell something yourself and you spend hundreds of thousands of dollars just to get going, sometimes you're not paying yourself a penny for years if you don't go bankrupt, in which case you lost all that money. And if you do make money, um, you're probably going to put it back into the company. And now you're stuck with this company, which you didn't really want to run with a lot of inventors. I talk to inventors every day. This is the case. And retailers won't take you serious unless you have a product line. And you're like, oh, crap. Now I got to have five or six more products. Now, if that's what you want and you're really passionate about running a business and employees and workman's comp and manufacturing issues and all this stuff, there's nothing wrong with that. Okay. But most inventors, they think that's cool. But once they get into it, they're like, this isn't what I want to do at all. Okay. So don't think, and, and sometimes you do it for the wrong reasons. Well, it'll happen faster if I do it. It's like, no, it won't. You can you know, risk all your money and you have no distribution. When you license, you tap into that 30,000 stores. Boom. They're already in, you know, if they have 30,000 stores, it's going to vary by company. When you try to create your own company, you're starting that business from scratch. You have no distribution. Nobody knows you, you know, and so there's a very big difference. So anyway, so I rambled a bit on that. Um, who is it? Uh, let's see. That was Xavier, um, the, the man with three names, Xavier, Xavier Allen Jones. He wanted five to ten do nots. I don't know if I gave you that many, but otherwise I'm going to take up the whole hour here. So hope, hopefully that was that helped you out, Xavier, just with a few random things. Um, Peter said, living in Canada, should I make a company? make a company in Canada or make an LLC in the States. It doesn't matter. I mean, Peter, if you're, if you're in Canada, you're going to form a company in Canada. Um, you're not going to form a, a United States. I mean, I don't know what would happen then. You'd have to pay taxes in both countries. No, no, they'll just pay you up there in Canada. Don't worry about that. We've had students in over, you know, students in over 65 countries, so they'll pay you in whatever country you're in. So you don't need to start a U.S., LLC or corporation. No. Um, but, you know, consult with your tax advisor to figure out what's right for you. Also, you don't have to start a company now. Most of our students, you know, they're like, oh, you know, I'm getting getting going and doing I see an LLC or a corporation. And I'm like, well, you know, you've got, it's up to you and talk to your legal advisor, but you're not next to no liability. I mean, what is somebody going to slip and fall on your cell sheet that you emailed them? You know, like what, what is the liability there? So, but when you get into a deal, you always want to do that deal under an LLC or a corporation or whatever type of business entity there is in your country because you don't want to do it under your personal name. Okay. But you could wait to get into your first deal to do that because with licensing, at least with our students, some people have spent a ton of money before they come on board with us. But um, 
you're not going to have a ton of stuff to write off. Like if you spend $65 on a sell sheet, a couple hundred dollars on a virtual prototype and a sell sheet or something like that. And oh, and a P $65 on a PPA. Sorry, I think I misspoke there. Um, it's not like you have all these expenses to write off. So, but you got to look at your tax situation and all that if you're spending a lot of money on stuff. But using the event right approach, most of the time you don't need to spend a lot of money. So you could file it now or you file it later, but you definitely don't have to file a US LLC. You're in Canada. I, I would do it in your own country, but talk to your tax advisor what would be best there. But that would be my guess as to what they're saying. Um, now, most... Most of the deals that our students do, despite um, our students being in over 65 countries, um, are with U.S. and Canadian companies. Now, there's yeah, our students have done deals with Australian companies and English companies and German companies and other companies around the world, or what you might perceive as Asian companies. But when I when you look at a a, a big Asian company and they're huge in the U.S. I see them as being the same as an American company. So when when you have a very large European or Asian company and they're they're big in the US, that's no different. They've got headquarters here, they got people speaking English here. I, I don't see that as being different than licensing an American company because they're very adept to um, the US market. So let's see. Okay, Diane said, "Hi, Andrew. After finishing your course, I wouldn't call it a course. I, you know, it's 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 a six month mentorship program where the coach is on top of the student every single day and guiding them through everything, and then our negotiation coach is waiting in the wings to guide them through any negotiations. So I wouldn't call it a course. It's not like you're by yourself. You're like with a coach. It's like this is what you need to do for your product." Um, but you said, hi, Andrew, after finishing your course, what do we get apart from knowledge of how to, what type of, how to, what type of certificate is it? I could give a rat's ass about the certificate. I mean, it doesn't, I mean, what's the point? You know, so I've had some, it's more Europeans that ask for that. And I don't think, Diane, I'm not sure if you're, you're in Europe or not, but it's like, who cares? We've had a few students mention it before, but if you've become empowered with real life experiencing working on a product or two for six months where you can say, I get it, guys, I don't need you anymore. If I get it over my head, I'll come back. Like, what is better than that? If you have the ability to come up with an idea, do your research, file a PPA, make your list of not two or three companies, but 20 or 30, make a good marketing presentation and reach out to companies with confidence, knowing how to handle those conversations knowing even how to do negotiations. If you've been in negotiation with us and our negotiation coach helped you out only when it's 95% done, would you then contact the licensing attorney before you sign it? What more could you ask for? I mean, that's amazing. So um, now I don't mind you asking about it like a certificate, but a company that you're going to be presenting to could care less about your certificate. They just looking at your product. You know, and to be honest with you, you need to be just easy enough to work with. You don't need to come across as a captain of industry. As long as your product is cool, it's about your product. They're not licensing you. They're licensing your product. So you could be a little awkward. You could not understand everything about business. But as long as you're easy enough to work with and not that doesn't mean you're not going to debate with them or negotiate, you know, in negotiations, perfectly fine there. Um, 
But as long as you're easy enough to work with, because companies will kick you to the curb. They're like, they, they could love the product and they go, oh God, this person's a wacky, like really unrealistic about stuff. Like I can tell, like, we're not going to be able to change the color without their permission. They're like, not worth it. And they will tell you not interested in your product because you're not worth it. Okay. Those are the things that are important. If you're like, here's my certificate from InventRight, they, they don't, they're like, what's that? You know? Um, now at the same time, we've had a lot of, we've not a lot. It's, I am surprised actually, we don't get a lot more people over the years. We've had people say that. So it's something that I would consider, but I mean, it would say to me, if I were to write it, it would be like, it would be talking about how you've become empowered to be a professional product developer. Cause you don't call yourself an inventor when you're going to companies, right? To be a professional product developer and you've, you've got this experience and I don't know what I would put in it. But there's my take on it, Diane. I think that was, um, it's like when you're self-employed, people don't care about your certifications. And it's an American thing, I guess. I mean, I guess they might if you did something and you have a master's instead of a bachelor's or a PhD or something. But to be honest, they're looking at the track record. What did you do for me? That's very American thing, right? Europeans, they want the certifications and stuff more. But the companies, I d I've never had a company, even a European company, go, what's your certification? They don't even ask about your portfolio. You know, I had a student that came, that came to me. It was like, God, this must have been like six years ago. And they said, they sent me an email and they said, Andrew, this company's asking me for my portfolio. What else have I done? I'm like, what? I said, that's exactly what I tell people they never say. But they did ask her, but it was an anomaly. And, and, and I, I, I gave her some advice. Um, but that's not, they don't ask you that. They just want to know what's in front of me. They're spending like six seconds to review your sell sheet to see if they're interested. And that's all you got. Do you think they care about reviewing a certificate? Anyway, rambled too long on that. Great question, Diane. Um, that's my mindset for you and for everybody. Um, and that's what I would advise being in the mindset that I just stated. Um, Uh, William said, hi, Andrew, when we are searching for companies on LinkedIn, why are you searching for companies on LinkedIn? Are we searching, for example, Disney marketing manager and who exactly will be looking for it that is not correct? About okay, so you're not searching for companies on LinkedIn. You're doing your market research to find the right companies that are making products in the space of your invention. And then you're searching for, yes, the marketing manager at those companies on LinkedIn, but you're not just wandering around LinkedIn looking for companies that might be a right match for you. You're looking for the people at those companies that you've already identified based on your market research. So um, so I guess, I guess uh, yeah, I guess your question is what are the titles? Yeah, I like marketing manager, could be sales, they might be more approachable, but marketing managers are who you're looking for mostly. Yeah, but good good question, William, thank you. Um, okay, Deidre, hi Andrew, several emails and phone calls. I, you guys, you gotta write complete sentences. Hi, Andrew. Several emails and phone calls, large manufacturers, production, distribution, co-like, liked my invention, PPA in place, forwarding to their licensing department. Do I need licensing lawyer? Guys, just write complete sentences, please. Um, 
Uh, and it's not you just, Deidre. There's other people doing it too. So don't, it's not just you. I mean, you're probably just trying to keep it short. Um, I don't know what you're saying. So a uh, production company liked my invention, like my invention PPA in place, forwarding to their licensing department. Do I need licensing lawyer? Okay, so no. And a licensing attorney, they're the best deal killers. They don't put deals together. It's a joke. Um, if you think like every time I get a little interest, company said, oh, you know, this is interesting. Let's talk. You call a licensing attorney. Oh, my God. It'll cost you an incredible amount of money. Um, you could spend thousands of dollars just to have them go back and forth. It would be a complete and utter waste of time and money. Do you want them looking over a final contract? Yeah. Do you want them trying to help you negotiate a deal? Hell no. Um, you would go broke very quickly. It would cost you a ton of money. So no, I would say no to that. Um, definitely. And I just don't understand the rest of your question. Um, Sam said, what skills should one acquire before joining the coaching program? So I get the most out of the program. So I would say you don't need any skills. Um, but if you've been watching me, he hearing me ramble on this, uh, live uh, Q&A, or you've been watching some of our shows, I think that's great. Um, the nice thing about having a coach is they look at your product and they go, this is what you need to do. They set you in place and they give you stuff to do every week. And you spend two to six hours every week. You want to spend more, great. But we don't expect you to spend more because most people got a job or a business or something to do. And you just get there before you know it because every week you're moving forward. Now, some of you go, oh, how would I, how would I get much done in two to six hours a week? Well, what you're probably doing now is going in circles two to six hours a week because you don't really know, know what to do. You're, you're focusing, you're thinking about stuff, but you're not doing stuff. So when a coach looks at your product and says, for this product, this is the right next thing to do, do this. And this is where I would look to, for more companies for this type of product or how to improve your marketing presentation or whatever. That is two to six hours, very productive. So um, I don't think you need any more skills, Sam. Your name is familiar. I think you've been following us for a long time. For some reason, your name is really familiar. So um, I don't think you need any skills. You can just show up. You need the, you need an attitude. You need that's what I that's I love I love your question because it's making me think about this. You need the right attitude. You need to be willing to spend two to six hours a week and going from just dreaming up ideas to actually working on them. There's a big leap there. But when you have a coach holding your hand, guiding you through it knowing that anything a company is going to say, they've got a response. That's when people take action. They're able to accomplish stuff. So um, I don't think you need to prepare. I think you just need the right mindset. You need a positive mindset, can-do attitude, follow your coach's direction. If you're ever like, why are you telling me to do that? Say it to them. Say, you know, I know you're telling me to do this, but it doesn't make sense to me. A coach might say, well, if you don't do it like this and this, this could happen. Oh, okay. So I'm all for questioning the coach, like, why did you tell me to do that, you know, um, or sharing little frustrations along the way so they can get you tweaked in. That's great. The more transparent you can be with your InventRight coach, the better. Um, uh, I can't not pronounce your name, but uh, greetings from Costa Rica, guys. Oh, well, welcome. That's really cool. Uh, Costa Rica. I think that's one of the more stable countries in Latin America. So that's that's cool. Um, there's some countries in Latin America having some some issues right now. Although I I haven't been I stopped I stopped watching the news two and a half months ago. I got so tired of it. So I have no idea what's going on, and I'm so happy because I was so obsessed with it. 
I do not watch the news anymore. I probably will pick it up. It's my little experiment. I think it's maybe even been three months. Um, so me commenting on what's going on in Latin America, don't, I'm not the right person to ask or make that comment, really, to be honest. Um, but I know Costa Rica is a beautiful country. Um, okay, Oliver said, hi, Andrew, I'm not a member, but I've been following all Invent Right steps to protect my idea. But I don't know who to reach out to when it's when it's dealing with sports. Okay, so um, I Oliver, I would say I'm just trying to make a point here. I wouldn't say you've been following all. You said you're following all our steps to protect your idea, but protecting an idea is like this, and there's like this much of the rest of it. But okay, you followed the steps to protect your idea, but you don't know how who to reach out to when dealing with sports. So I guess it's a sports related product. So, you know, it's not that it's not rocket science. You're going to reach out to companies that are selling products somewhat in the same space in the retailers where you want to be. So making your list of potential licensees can take you two to 10 hours to do it, but it's so worth it. It's pretty rare. It takes 10 hours, guys, but some people are really slow about it the first time. So that's why I like to say that. But you need to make your list from scratch. And, you know, a coach, what a coach would do is he, they would look at your product and they would say, oh, what about this? And what about that? And you start to get a feeling for it. So um, of what types of companies you'd be reaching out to. That's, that's something that we help our students out with a lot. And it's something people get stuck on their own. Um, but once you know how to do it, it's really not that hard. Uh, Zion. Zion created. If a company is interested and wants to show the team, would you draw up a letter of intent? I think that's what it's called. No, not really. If they want to show the team, they're going to show your te their team at the company, maybe other departments in the company, your sell sheet or video sell sheet to get them on board. You don't need a letter of intent. Um, no. You, you need to know how to move the deal forward. The letter of intent, that just sounds awkward, guys. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't say it's a bad thing to do, but, you know, let them show the team. They're not completely on board. Like, what's with the letter of intent? Let them show the rest of the team. If it's another person in marketing, a person in engineering, a person in sales, and they want to show the team, let them show them your good, preferably, marketing presentation ask them what they would like to see. So if there's something else you need to prepare, you can prepare it for them, but not a letter in, of intent. Um, uh, hi, Andrew. Jay Bell here. If I hire a freelance graphic designer, say from Fiverr, to produce the sell sheet, should they sign an NDA? Thank you. You got to be careful with Fiverr. Um, a lot of those guys won't sign the NDAs and the agreement on Fiverr for a while said, and I think it might still, I don't know, so don't quote me on that, said that whatever you, whatever work they do for you, they can publicly show in their Fiverr portfolio. And you don't want that. So make sure to read the terms for Fiverr. And um, what happens if that NDA conflicts with the terms of the Fiverr agreement? I don't know. So be very careful of that. Um Oliver said, uh, but I had to reach out to a product producer to get some kind of guidance for my idea. 
was that a bad idea because I did let them know that my product idea is protected? No, I, Oliver, if you reached out to a contract manufacturer, not the licensee, and you said, well, here's what it is. Can you make this? And can you make it at a reasonable price? That's fine. You wouldn't say, can you make it a reasonable price? And so reach out to a contract manufacturer. And, and most of the time, you'll get them to sign an NDA if they're open to that. Um, you should definitely try to do that um, if it's a contract manufacturer, which is different than a potential licensee. And they can, you kind of getting like free research and development. They're saying, oh, th this couldn't even be done. Or, oh, yeah, that could be done. So there's nothing wrong with that, Oliver, if that's what you did. Um, but I would get them to sign an NDA. Um, you could have filed a PPA too, but most contract manufacturers will sign an NDA. Most potential licensees uh, won't up front. Um, because what you're saying is you need to agree whatever I show you is confidential and they don't even know what you're showing them yet. But for contract manufacturer, it's usually fine. Um, Xavier said, thanks for the feedback. You're welcome, Xavier. Um, uh, Jeffrey said, how do I determine whether a company or a group of companies you're not familiar with is a small, medium, or large company? Who cares? Um, doesn't matter. If they're in a major retailer you want to be, you know they're not rinky-dink, so you know they're at least medium-sized, so that's good enough. you know. And you're going to approach all your potential licensees, and you're just going to talk to the ones that are interested. If you get interest from one that's small or medium, I could teach you a million ways till Tuesday, till delay, until you hear back from the bigger company. So don't try to assess if they're small, medium, or large. I mean, you are going to assess if they're in a major retailer, they're not that small. They're big enough. That's my that's my take on it. Okay. But your this thought that you have to assess that, you're going to assess that with the companies you get interest on. And you're like, maybe they're a big company and they but they got small plans for your product. Maybe they're a medium-sized company, but they got big plans for your product. So it's not like you're going to call a company and now you're committed to them. You're going to assess that when you're negotiating and you're going to figure out what they're going to commit to. So it's just a waste of time. If they're in a major retailer, why would you assess small, medium, large? Like, who cares? It's just, it's just messing around, wasting time by doing that. Um, now, I could see, you know, um, like Stephen or other co-founders says, like, it's not the big companies, the small ones, the medium ones. He says that quite often, but he would agree with what I just said. Um, so that's why I don't say that, because then people feel like they need to assess the size of the company. It doesn't matter. There, you're, you're going to figure out. And if you just assess further the ones that you got interest from, that just makes it easier. Otherwise, you're just people going around and around in circles with licensing, wasting time on things you don't need to waste time on. Um, okay. Okay. Houston said, I missed out on the. Q&A for members today due to technical difficulties, but I'm happy to hang out here. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, we we do a live Q&A for our students. The coaches do it um, in addition to having one-on-one -on -one help on Mondays at the exact same time, which is kind of weird. So Houston, um, welcome to, to my public Q&A for non-students. Um, Uh, Jerry here and soon to do the one-on-one -on -one coaching with InventRight. That's great, Jerry, whenever you're ready. Um, aside from tapping into Mark Portney's infrastructure and context, how does 
he he get paid doing business with him straight up percentage or a fee i don't know i mean it's just mark portney's a guy that steven brings on our youtube shows so um we get nothing we we have never get a um uh a fee for anything that we do a percentage so when our students license up they keep 100 percent of whatever they license i don't care if that's a potential licensee or if it's one of our bridging the gap um speakers we have a program called bridging the gap where we bring on two companies a month a CEO or marketing manager usually, and they talk about what they're looking for. It's great because the students are saying like, wow, I realize they're, they're people just like me. They talk about their problems with their job. They talk about um, their issues. They talk about what they like from inventors, don't like from inventors. And they talk about what specifically what types of products they're looking for. And sometimes it's stuff that's not even on their site. It's really cool. So we do that twice a month. Um, but what... Um, now I lost track. Oliver was referred to, it wasn't Oliver. It was, doo -doo -doo, lost track. Oh, it was uh, Jerry. Was referring to as, as Mark Parton. He's just a guy that Stephen knows and he, he goes, does interviews with Stephen sometimes. And um, he has his own company. And uh, it's just one guy though, guys. So Jerry, um, you should never be working on a project where you submit to one company. You should never be working on a project that you're only going to submit to three companies. It's an utter and complete waste of time. Now, that's not what you said you were doing, Jerry. This is just my general advice. You should be working on projects that have at least 10 or 15 potential licensees. And most of our students reach out to 20 or 30 because then you're playing the numbers game. So I don't know exactly how Mark works, but we never take a percentage of people we have on our YouTube show or bridging the gap companies that come on for our students or when our students license the product, we never take a percentage. Um, I have people like, well, but Andrew, you'll take it more seriously. If I give you a percentage, I want to. I'm like, no, because these invention scam companies, what they do is they try to get 10 or 12,000 out of you and they go, oh yeah, and we want 20% of your royalties too, to make you believe they're actually gonna do something with your product. But it's just a distraction. What they really want is that 10 or 12K and they pretend like they're going to work on the project. Who knows if they are and they never do. So we don't want to be anything like those guys. We're the antithesis of those guys. And so that's just one of many reasons. Another reason is I wouldn't want a student like they're getting close to closing a deal and then they don't get help from our negotiation coach, Paul, because they don't want to give us our percentage, you know, and then they kill the deal because... <laughs> they didn't want us to know we're closing the deal. We don't want that weirdness. So th those are just two reasons. I could probably come up with other reasons why we don't take a percentage. Um, uh, M said, can you license that idea without knowing how to build the item or understanding coding, which is already used by the intended company, or could they get their mechanics to help out with the product, uh, help you out with the product? So, you know, a lot of products, let's say you got this new kitchen cutting board and you just chopped one up and it's in a different shape. So it's easier to clean or it's easier to sh shuffle the vegetables off in the garbage disposal or whatever it is. So you could just modify an existing product. So um, a lot of times they just look at it and go, oh, yeah, we can do that. So this thought that you need this beautiful production ready prototype or one at all. Sometimes you just have a, um, a virtual prototype. And when they ask you how it's made, you just go with site similar products, even with the price points. And you go, well, I just changed this. And they're like, oh, okay. You'd be surprised how often that works. It doesn't work all the time, of course. Um, but it works uh, more often than you think. Um, 
Now, there's parts of the product that you're you're licensing and you don't even understand it. Like there's, it's an electronics product. And you're like, I don't know how that circuit board works and stuff, but you just put a hinge on the side of it, okay? And so do you need to understand all the inner workings of this product when there's other products that are just like it and you made a change? You just need to understand your change, okay? Now, there might be even other products, electronics. You don't know how to make it beep and boop at a certain time. and But you see other products that are doing that. And you're like, well, they, they did that over there. It's, it's a toy, but this is for um, reminding yourself to take your medication or whatever. You can cite those types of things. And that can be their reference point. People are shocked that, that you can do that. Our students do that all the time. So it saves you from going out and spending $5,000. Now, the coding part, you said, or could get their mechanics, understand coding. Programming is, is, a, is a different deal um, with coding if it's an app or something like that, um, because that can be extremely time consuming. Um, but again, if you could cite similar products, you could do that there too. But apps are really hard to license. I don't know if that's what you're talking about. It's not like you were talking about a physical product at first, but... Um, uh, boy. Tananzin, Tananzin, Tananzin. Okay, uh, okay. I, I probably butchered your name, but I tried. You got to give me an A for effort. How would I go about the PPA for a product that is a combination of two popular products and not infringing on their current invention? I don't know. File it. <laughs> Just how would you go about the PPA? So. When you, if you got a version of two products, so you're going to be talking about what's unique to the way you're using the product. What's unique there? And you're trying to hang your hat and get some intellectual property or patent protection on what is the new functionality of it for your use. Okay. So you could take a product and you could use it in a different way and it's a whole new use and get a patent on it quite often. So you would talk and focus on your functionality. Okay. And, and you said it's not infringing on the current invention, so you're, you're good there. Um, Bob said, is sending your sell sheet to companies that don't normally license ideas a good idea? Also, uh, also, how do you tell when you should go for actual patents as opposed to a PPA? So, well, how would you know? Yes, it's, a, it's sending your sell sheet to a company. You ask permission first. If you don't know if they're open or not, we covered that at the top of the hour. Absolutely, you should do that. That's what you're going to do most of the time. The thought, and I shared this at the beginning, that you need confirmation that they're open to ideas is you're shooting yourself in the foot. You don't. You don't need a name. You don't need confirmation that they're open to ideas. If they're in a major retailer you want to be, that's all you need to know. You don't need to confirm the size once they're in a major retailer. And then you're going to go on LinkedIn and you're going to try to find a marketing manager um, that is working for that company and you're going to reach out to them. So, um, you don't, it's, there's nothing, how would you know if they normally receive ideas or not? doesn't matter. You ask them if they're open to receiving it. If they say yes, you send it. That's simple. The other part of your question, how do you tell when you should go for actual patents as opposed to a PPA? A hundred percent of the time you should go for a PPA. Now, don't consider anything I say to be legal advice tonight. So please seek the service of your attorney. That's my disclaimer if you're looking for legal advice. But we advise our students to get a PPA. Why would you use you use the year for 65 bucks 
to be able to say patent pending. Why would you go out and spend 10 grand on a patent? Because a lot of times when you talk to companies, you're going to need to make a change. Spend 10 grand on a patent, get an issued patent, then realize you make a change, spend another 10 grand. That's just stupid. You know, so 100% of the time you would be getting a PPA. Okay. Um, and then now it doesn't do you any good if you file a PPA and you just sit on your hands because you don't know how to license. So you file the PPA like the week before you're ready to start reaching out to companies and not two companies, but 20 or 30 and not with a crappy sell sheet like I see most from most non-invent rights students, but an incredible sell sheet that they get in six seconds. So you're shooting yourself in your foot if they don't understand your product in six seconds. It's not super clear. It doesn't look really nice. You're shooting yourself in your foot if you only contact two or three companies. You're shooting yourself in the foot if you think that you need confirmation that they're open to ideas. Now you're just sending to companies that have a portal on their website. There's tons of marketing managers are like, oh, yeah, send it on over. Okay. So thank you. Great question, Bob. Um, and everybody has great questions today. Um, let's see. So last question, and this will be a good one for everybody. Gerard said he is a misperception. Kind of does, kind of doesn't. He said, I have products for a Bass Pro Shops and REI. REI is Rec Recreational Equipment Incorporated. Those are both retailers. All right. And he says, can I license them both at the same time? So before I even answer that question, Gerard, you are not understanding how licensing works. You don't license to retailers. You license to manufacturers that sell at retailers. Now, the exception is, which Bass Pro Shops and REI both have their lines. The exception is, if they have their own product lines, then you can license to a retailer. If there's like a, um, a spork or whatever, a camping spork, because REI does camping stuff, right? a camping utility knife, whatever. And it says REI on it. Well, that's their own brand. The thing is, retailers like to reduce costs on generic items. They're not typically innovating, um, but that is changing. So Gerard, I'll correct you first. The thought that you're just going to license to retailers like Bass Pro Shops and REI, your thought process is all messed up. You want to look at all the other manufacturers that are selling at those retailers, reach out to them. Okay. And the other question, the other thought process that needs to be fixed is the thought that you would license to them both at the same time. That makes no sense. Then they don't have a point of difference. The thought that you're going to license to Bass Pro Shops or to two manufacturers and going to sell on the same sh shelf at Bass Pro Shops doesn't make any sense. You're going to license to one company. Now, if they're selling in different distribution channels, different geographies, a different version of the product, one selling it convenience stores, one selling at big box stores. Yeah, you can break it out that way. If, if it's not stepping on each other, if the licensees aren't stepping on each other's toes, great, you can do it. Most of the time they are. But thinking that you're going to make more money licensing to more companies is not true most of the time because it doesn't give the other company a point of difference. And now why, why would the company want to do a non-exclusive and then you license other doesn't make any sense. You could license it to a manufacturer, a brand that sells to both R and Bass Pro Shops and, and um, Dick Sporting and five other retailers with, like most brands do already. So, so that was a great question, Gerard. Thank you. I'm glad. I love it when people misunderstand these things because it gives me a, 
an answer to answer your question, but everybody else benefits from it too. So um, we got a ton of people on here. Um, it's funny at the beginning, like 10 minutes in, not that many people. And then at the end, it just really shoots up. So I'm going to ask a favor of you all. If you're not subscribed, click on the subscribe button as your thank you to me for spending an entire hour answering your questions for completely free. Okay. If you're already subscribed, don't click on it. And so now it says unsubscribed. Okay. Nothing happens when you subscribe. Um, except I guess if you're on your phone, it might say so-and-so is online live or something, but nothing happens. So, but it helps us tremendously. We'd love to get to 80,000 subscribers within a reasonable period of time. We're above 50,000 now. It would really help us out. The other thing you can do to help me out is watch a bunch of our videos, which is great advice. We're not in there pitching our, our mentoring program every two minutes at all. And we really don't pitch it. People tell me like, what do you guys sell? It's like, what are you talking about? We coach and mentor and mentors to license their products. Haven't you heard it was referred to our students all the time? But we're so light about it, not pushy about it. You will enjoy watching our YouTube show and you'll think it's great advice. So watch a bunch of our YouTube shows and give us thumbs up on all the videos you like. And um, if you have anything you want to type in, I'll leave the chat open to me. Um, you're welcome to type that. And I remind everybody to take care, keep inventing, and we'll catch up with you next time. See you guys. Bye.